Give me the choice of going to the beach or the mountains, and I will choose the mountains almost every single time. Every couple of years, two or three days at the beach is okay, but it's the mountains that call my name. There's too much sand at the beach, and the water is too salty, and there are too many creatures in the ocean, and it's hot, and it's sticky. And did I mention the sand? The mountains, they leave me in awe, and they call my name. The psalmist understood this. I lift up my eyes to the hills, not to the beach. From where will my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now let me hasten to say it is okay for us to disagree about this. Some of you beach lovers may be feeling a bit put off by me right now. You may be feeling distanced from me. You may be thinking, if we have this much difference between us, our relationship will now not be what it used to be. I don't think you are wrong for preferring the mountain, for, for, for preferring the beach. I love the mountains. I don't think you're wrong for preferring the beach over the mountains. But I am saying that the transfiguration happened on a mountaintop. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I assume you can infer that I might be talking about more than mountains and beaches. This transfiguration happens to be one of my favorite scenes in the Bible. Clearly, there were so many incredible moments with Jesus that when it came to giving words to describe these moments, the eyewitnesses and the recorders of history sometimes took to poetry and sometimes they used creative writing to try and paint a picture of what they had experienced. His face shone like the sun. And his clothes became dazzling white. When I went to India, you go through the dirty, crowded streets of Agra to get to this brick wall. And you take your shoes off and you walk through the wall. And the Taj Mahal is the most gloriously white building I've ever seen. It is magnificent. You almost have to wear sunglasses to look at it. After coming through the dirty streets to get there, there's this pristine garden, and it's, there are no words. It's like it's dazzling. It's like it is lit up. It's like it's on fire with beauty. You see what I did there? I painted a picture for you. It wasn't really on fire. It wasn't really dazzling. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white and a bright cloud overshadowed them and from the cloud a voice that said, This is my son, 
the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. This mountaintop experience must have really been something. Today is Transfiguration Sunday, the day where churches all over the world tell this very story again, because we told it last year too, and the year before that, and the year before that, and the year before that. We don't tell every Jesus story every year on the same Sunday, just some of the stories, you know, like we tell the birth of Jesus at Christmas. A few weeks later, we tell about his baptism. Then, a little bit later on, we will tell about his grand parade on Palm Sunday into Jerusalem. And then we do tell the resurrection story on Easter. And we always tell the story of the day the church was born at Pentecost. Those are the big stories. But every year, this mountaintop transfiguration story gets its own day, too. It makes you wonder, how does one story rank so much higher than other good stories? Like, why don't we tell his walking on water story 10 weeks after Easter every year? That's a good one. Walking on water is a good story. Or why don't we repeat the one about the time everyone had circled around the woman with stones in their hands, just popping them up in their hands, ready to beat her to a pulp? And he steps in to save the day by forcing everyone to take a hard look at themselves. Why don't we tell that story on a certain Sunday every single year? Of course, there's a story about the woman that simply touches the hem of Jesus' robe and she's healed like that. That's a good one. Why don't we tell that one every single year on the same Sunday? And then there's the first miracle of turning water into wine at a wedding. That deserves a Sunday of its own more than once a year, doesn't it? But every year we get this story again, just before Ash Wednesday and the beginning of Lent. We catch one more time this grand aha moment where we get smoke and lights and booming voice that recognizes Jesus for who he is. He was announced as beloved, well-pleased. And the story ends with the command, listen to him. And that's the key to this whole transfiguration moment, I think. Listen to him. Once we get to the letter-writing campaign of the New Testament, we have a letter from someone using Peter's name. It wasn't forgery, as Russ described. It was okay to write in the name of another. It was, in that world, it gave weight and credibility to the words being written. When I read today's passage from 2 Peter, who retells the transfiguration story, I was struck by the writer's words kind of in the middle of that text. You might have even missed it. The writer says, Therefore, I intend to keep on reminding you of these things. I intend to keep on reminding you of these things, even though you've already heard all of this before and you know these things by heart and you are already living and practicing what you've been taught. Even so, 
I intend to keep on reminding you of these things. Yep. That's pretty much the job of a preacher. To keep on reminding you of the things you've already heard and you've already learned before. Did you really think you would come here today and hear something new? You won't. It's the same story over and over and over again. But it is the job of a preacher to keep on reminding you of the things you've already heard and learned, to keep on reminding you of the same stories that you've heard a thousand times before, to remind you again of our calling to listen to him and follow. That's what you pay me to do, to tell you what you already know. It's the greatest job ever. Today, we bring to a close our series on being community. I have thoroughly enjoyed this journey through these weeks. It has not been easy, and there have been moments when it has not been pleasant. But I have really enjoyed this journey with the Corinthian church for the past many weeks as we have sought a word about what it means to be community together. There have been plenty of other times in our nation's history when we have needed a series of lessons like this. None any more important than the time we are in right now. Divided over far greater things than the preference of vacation getaways, the beach, or the mountains. We have been called to live in community. So if I can borrow from the writer of 2 Peter, let me remind you again about these important words that will help our community, our church, to be a more effective community of faith, especially in trying times. And I'm just going to take it straight from the passage that was read earlier. Because at the end of this listing of what it means, the writer says... These will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. So this is what it will take for us to be effective. Support your faith with goodness, the writer says. Support your faith with goodness. It never, ever hurts to go back to my daddy's words of wisdom on the first day of school every year. Now, if you've been with us for 16-plus years, you've heard this so many times, you can repeat it with me. But there are new people that need to hear these words of wisdom. This is the first day of school lecture every morning of my life for 12 years. Do you know right from wrong? The Lord don't love ugly. Act like you've got parents. That's it. Do you know right from wrong? The Lord don't love ugly. Act like you've got parents. I think that pretty much sums up what it means to be good. 
It has worked for me all these years, not that I've always practiced what he preached, but it has been planted deep within my core to live out of that kind of sense of goodness. Support your faith with goodness. And then support your goodness with knowledge. Be informed. Let us not be distracted by the glitz and glamour. Let us not live off of the 30-second sound bites of information. Let us not be distracted by the circus of our times. And let me suggest that the very best way to gain the knowledge that we need is to get to know people that are facing the issues of our day and not just talk about the issues as if real life individual people are not being affected by any issue we could discuss. And please let me remind you again that the gospel is heavily bent towards the poor and the outcast and the oppressed. So that is always an area where we need to gain more knowledge. Support your goodness with knowledge and support your knowledge with self-control. That one's a doozy. Knowing when to speak and when to keep your mouth shut, knowing when to act and when to sit still, these are some of the hardest lessons to learn. Listed among the fruit of the Spirit, Self-control takes an inner strength that has to be developed and practiced as if you were practicing the piano to play at Carnegie Hall. Self-control takes that kind of practice, resisting the urge to lash out, taking a pause before you speak. Support your knowledge with self-control and support your self-control with, the writer says, endurance. I'm a terrible runner. Number one is because I hate it and therefore don't do it. But I admire folks that do. We have folks running marathons. Somebody's running a half marathon in Florida today from our church. We have folks that run obstacle courses in the mud on purpose. The training and persistence and the stick-to-it, can-do spirit never ceases to amaze me. Whenever I hear about endurance, I am reminded of this other passage. We also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us. Never give up pursuing justice, mercy, and goodness. Support your self-control with endurance and support your endurance with godliness. We are made in the very image of God, having within each one of us a spark of divine calling to the holy ways of acting and living and speaking and loving. Some people of faith see this the other way around. They believe we are so stained with the capacity for wrongdoing that our lives are to be lived constantly being saved from our own depravity. 
But I believe in the poet's vision of creation, that the divine response to the emergence of humanity was to name us very good, not just good, very good. Now all we have to do is live like we really believe that and trust that that will make all the difference. Support your endurance with godliness and support your godliness with mutual affection. This calls for another pearl of wisdom from my father. He never wanted gifts. He didn't like birthdays because he didn't like getting old. All through his 70s and 80s, he would rear back in his recliner and look down at his legs and pulling up on his pants legs just a little bit, he'd say, just look at those legs. They used to be the fastest legs in Lawrence County. Many people at his funeral visitation came up to me and said, Back in the day, your daddy was the fastest man in Lawrence County. And I'd say that's exactly what he said. <laughs> he didn't like getting older and his body giving out on him, so he didn't want any presents at birthdays to remind him that his legs were no longer as fast as they once were. And at Christmas, he didn't need anything and wanted for very little and he thought we all just overdid it with the presents and he would say don't get me a present just love and affection I just want love and affection just give me love and affection he said it so many times that one year my sister-in-law cross-stitched for him as a Christmas gift the words love and affection that cross-stitch still hangs by his recliner today. And it reminds me of how we are to treat one another and care for one another with mutual affection. Support your godliness with mutual affection. And the writer of Second Peter says, and finally, support your mutual affection with love. As always, whenever dealing with the Bible or God or issues of spiritual matters, the final word is always love. I will never tire of reminding you again and again and again of the love of God and the way of Jesus that holds the power to transfigure our lives. I will never tire of reminding you over and over and over again that when you look into the face of Jesus, that your very face will be dazzling. Your clothes will change. I will never, ever, ever tire of reminding you again and again and again because that's what you have hired me to do and I will not stop it. May it be so. Amen.